time, everybody. It is time for Apollos Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And last week on our show, we talked about trusting in God in tough times, because for many of us, we are in tough times right now. But this week, I want to zoom in on an aspect of that, and that's how do we trust in God in tough times? I mean, we can say trust in God, right? Trust in God, trust in God, let go, let God. We can say trust all the time, but how do we do that? What's to be our mental perspective? How do we trust? God, with our finances, with our career, with our family, with our health. How do we do that? That's what we're going to look at today. But before we get to that, we have a word from our fabulous sponsor. Are you looking to buy or sell a home in the Chicagoland area? If so, I highly recommend calling Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate and her team. She comes with years of experience and loves people. She's trustworthy and cares about her clients. I know because I am one of them. Kathy is my agent, and I am proud to say that. She met with us and learned what we were looking for, presented us with the best options, and helped us find what was right for us, and she will help you find what is right for you. And she didn't only help us purchase a home, but here's the thing about Kathy. She regularly checks in to see how we are doing. I don't know how she does it. She's superwoman, but she does. She's attentive to your needs and style and comes alongside you to help you discover and find what is best for you. My recommendation is giving her a call or text today at 630-201-4664. That's 630-201-4664. That's Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. Tell her Travis sent you. When we're talking about trust, I think about different stories that I've encountered over the years. And one of the greatest stories is from Pastor Chuck Swindoll. He told a great story about trust. A huge crowd was watching the famous tightrope walker Blondin cross Niagara Falls one day in 1860. He had crossed it numerous times, a 1,000-foot trip, 160 feet above the raging waters. I can just see the YouTube videos had this been today, all of the people looking around with their cameras in the air, videotaping what was going on. And he not only walked across it, but he also pushed a wheelbarrow across it. I mean, that's a daredevil right there. That's getting all the hits, right? He's doing this pretty extreme thing. Everybody's coming to check it out. And one little boy just stared at him in amazement, speechless. And after completing a crossing, the fellow looked at the little boy and he said, do you believe that I could take a person across in this wheelbarrow without falling? The kid responded, yes, sir, I really do. Then Blondin says, well, then get in, son. You know, for many of us, our trust only stays in the cloud. It's, it's in the general. It, it doesn't ever get specific. I mean, we talk about trust all the time. But when it comes down to it, how do we trust? I mean, we got to get into God's wheelbarrow. I mean, that's what the little boy needed to do. That's how he was to display his trust, by getting in the wheelbarrow. And some of us need to get into God's wheelbarrow. He called us to get in. 
We've said that we believe he can carry us safely. Many people testify to that fact. Yes, I've got faith. I trust in God. But when times get really tough, we find out where and what and who we really trust in. And right now, it's a tough time for many of us, and it's caused us to really reevaluate who or what are we trusting in. And we got to get beyond the cliches. I can't stand the cliches. We got to get down into the real life of how we trust in God. And when we ask ourselves that, we, I mean, we believe he can carry us safely, but would we really get in? I don't know. And if we did, what does that look like? I mean, really, what does trusting God look like? That's what I want us to explore together today, how to trust in God with our money, our careers, our education, desires, relationships, finances, safety, security, all of these different things. And perhaps there is no better text in all of scripture to look at than Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 through 10. It's a well-known passage, although many of us only know a couple of verses if we know any at all. Some of us listening right now might be completely unfamiliar with this text, but I would venture to say that even those who are not walking with Jesus have at least a familiarity with this text. And I want to read it for us. We're in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 through 10. And here's the text. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. I want to peek into how this trust thing, trust thing really works. And let's break this down. Let's get into verse 5 right now. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. The idea here is to depend upon God completely. Now, this doesn't mean sitting around doing nothing. This is the idea that my whole life is recognizing who God is and acknowledging him and letting him dictate my life. We've often heard the expression, and I really can't stand it because it's really usually used as a cliche without people understanding what that means. But they say, let go and let God. Let go and let God. And usually that means that people are coming from an honest heart. They really do have your best idea in mind, but they don't understand the depth of what you're going through. And they don't know what that means for you. They don't know what the mental perspective means. They don't know what your, the fear and trepidation that just crowns all over your heart, your mind, and the anxiety that overwhelms you and how your imagination simply is running amok. And what does it mean to let go and let God? What does that mean? What does that look like in my life? That's what I want to ask people. You say, let go and let God. What does that look like in my marriage? What does that look like with my kids? with my job or my education? What does it mean to trust the Lord for my relationships or with my finances? This is where I think we need to get beyond the theoretical to the personal everyday trusting. Here is what trusting is, okay? And this is how we do it. First up, it requires us to stick with God in everything. It means staying with and relying on him. God is completely reliable, we show our faith not by saying we believe or making promises. It's not about what we say, but what we do. 
And the better we know the Bible, we will know the God of the Bible, and we will be better able to trust in him. Again, this might seem like a bit of a cliche. You might say to me, okay, I get with it. I get it. Stick with God and everything. But again, you're not telling me how to trust. All right, here's where we're going to get really specific. It means to stay close to him, be dependent upon him. And allow me to illustrate this to really bring it out for us. To show we are depending on him means believing and following what God says. All right? This is where we go right back to the word of God. If you want to know the will of God, you need to go to the word of God. You need to stop looking at all the other things in your life. You stop looking at the opinions of others. Stop getting all of the insights from other people or TV preachers or any of that. You need to go back to the word of God because 90% of the will of God is revealed in the word of God right now. I mean, there are other things that God, we don't know exactly what God says to us and what direction. And so we pray and and operate according to the best of our knowledge with the information that we've been given. But most of the will of God has been revealed in the word of God. And that means following what God says. Many of the things that we need to trust God in are already revealed in his word, the Bible. Here's what I mean by that. People say, well, who am I going to marry? Who does God have for me to marry? Who's that one person? There's nowhere in scripture that we read that we are to find this one person out of all the billion people on the earth. That's a a huge undertaking. Instead, it gives us general principles where we learn to see and follow someone that loves God. That's it. A person that loves God. And of course, there are many other factors that play into that, depending upon the person who is there. But we need to find someone, first of all, that loves God. And we can build other principles or draw other principles outside of the Bible to really see that. What does it mean for a person to love God? What does it mean for them? And what does it mean for us? And there are many other principles that need to be put in place for us to discern that. But that's just a great example. I've had people come to me and they say, well, I think God has for me to marry this person. And they're not a believer in Jesus. And I I can say completely and with all honesty, no, I know the will of God in this situation. God does not want you to marry that person. That's it. And people say, well, you you don't know. You don't know. and, And God might use me to reach them. Okay, missionary dating is not the way to go. God does not call you to missionary date. You don't date to make disciples. That's not how it works. Now, you might share Jesus with them, and they might become a follower of Jesus, and then that happens, but not before that. And I've seen so many people over the years that I've encountered that bear the wounds on their souls because they thought they knew better than God, and they operated outside of the parameters of the Word of God, and they continue to regret the mistakes that they have made over the years. And that's one of the hardest things to live with. Regret. Yet God does give us second chances and there, are, there is forgiveness for our sins, but there are consequences that sometimes last a lifetime. And we need to go back and say to ourselves, what does God say in this matter if we have that opportunity? Now, some of us have had decisions that we've already made that we can't go back and change. So we have to make the best decisions going forward. And we need to trust that God knows what he's doing and God has laid out his word for us to trust in him and to stick with him in everything and listen to him to give us direction. I I encountered a great story by Robert W. Sutton. 
He says that 30 years ago, before the 1988 Winter Olympics, there was a TV show featuring blind skiers being trained for slalom skiing. Blind skiing. Now, I don't know how to ski, okay? I can't imagine skiing and not being able to see. But these blind skiers were paired with sighted skiers and trained to ski on flat surfaces so that they would know how to make right and left turns. And once they mastered that, they were taken to the slopes where their sighted partners would ski beside them shouting, left, right. And as they obeyed the commands, they were able to negotiate the course and cross the finish line, depending solely on the sighted skier's word. It was either complete trust or complete catastrophe. He goes on to say, what a vivid picture of the Christian life. In this world, we are in reality blind about what course to take, and we must rely solely on the word of the only one who is truly sighted, God himself. His word gives us the direction, and we need to finish the course. That's a great picture. Do we trust in God? And and are we willing to stick with him even when times get tough? And we think that people don't know. Okay, people may not know, but God does know. And we have to get beyond the cliches, get beyond the bad advice, and get back to the word of God and say, do we trust even when the times get hard? It's easy to say we trust when everything's going our way. How difficult is it to trust when your spouse says, I'm leaving you? When your child says, I'm done with the faith, or you find out that you have a cancer report, or you get a knock on the door and there's a policeman saying that your son or daughter has died, are you going to trust then? Or when you get fired, or when you're suffering injustice at someone else's hands, when you've been hurt, when you've been kicked, when you've been beaten, are you going to trust then? That's when the rubber meets the proverbial road. Here we read that we are not to lean on our own understanding. What does that mean? It means sticking with God even when what he is asking us doesn't make sense. God's values and man's values are often against each other. In our world, man says, get whatever you can, get all of the money, power, and fame you can, and you will be happy. God says, give up this world and pursue me, and then you will be happy. Man says, get. God says, give. Man says, trust no one. God says, trust in me. Man says, do whatever feels good. And God says, deny yourself. Man says, dump your spouse. Life is too short to be miserable. God wants you to be happy. Nope. God says, be faithful. Stay in it. Keep praying and hoping. God wants you to be happy, yes, but holy. He wants you to be holy within his will, even when times are hard. And he allows certain things to come into our life so that the truth and the power of Christ might come out of us. And those are the most painful of lessons. The most painful of lessons. But we've shared this before. When we're talking about a tea bag, for example, when does the flavor of the tea come out? When the water gets hot. When what, is, what causes the flavor of the coffee? Do you just put the beans into the coffee machine and let it go? Unless you have a grinder in there. No, that's not what you do. The bean has to be broken. And then the hot water hits it. And that, that smell just flies and it becomes the aroma of Christ. You know, the Bible says that we are the aroma of Christ. To those who are being saved, it is the sweet aroma. But to those who are under the sentence of death, it is a smell of death. 
And it's when we are broken and then God, the Holy Spirit, brings that brokenness alive where we are seeking to obey him and honor him that the smell or the aroma of Christ permeates everything around us. And it is an awesome thing. It's like when you walk into a coffee shop and you just smell it in the air and you walk out and you smell like it. Now, some people love that. Some people hate that. But if we're taking it to the conclusion of Jesus Christ and the aroma of Christ, then we come out smelling like Christ and people around us want to know what has gone on. And that's when we're saying, I'm going to follow even when it's hard, even when it hurts. God says, be faithful, sting in it, keep praying and hoping. He wants you to stay within his will, even when times are hard. And we are going to fail. And I know some people are saying, well, I've already failed. Yes, you have. I have too. We've all failed. We've all fallen short. And there are consequences that each one of us has to deal with. But we know with God, there's mercy and there's grace. And there is forgiveness. That's why we have 1 John 1, 9. One of those passages that we're to wrap our arms around and hug. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, how beautiful that is. Or Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those are verses I would recommend memorizing. You know, in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 119, it says that, I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. There are truths that we need to memorize to make a part of our internal mental operating system so that when times are tough, that comes up. And it just comes into the forefront of our mind so that we can trust and find rest and know that our God is a forgiving God and he's calling us back to himself and he's asking us to trust him all over again. To trust him when times get hard. And that's where we have to go back to God's word. As we read in Proverbs chapter 14 verse 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. God is calling us to trust in him. And that requires faith, the ability to believe in what we cannot see. E. Shiler English tells the story that took place in the early part of the 20th century with a man who lived on Long Island and who was one day able to satisfy a lifelong ambition by purchasing for himself a very fine barometer. When the instrument arrived at his home, he was extremely disappointed to find that the indicating needle appeared to be stuck, pointing to the sector marked Hurricane. After shaking the barometer very vigorously several times, the new owner sat down and wrote a scorching letter to the store from which he had purchased the instrument. The following morning, on the way to his office in New York, he mailed the letter. That evening, he returned to Long Island to find not only that the barometer was missing, but his house was also. The barometer's needle had been right. There was a hurricane. God's word points in directions that we may not like, that we want to shake it and make it different, but we can't, because they are the right directions. 
Trusting in God and in trusting in God and leaning not on our own understanding involves every single aspect of our life. And it means here's one big part of it. And that means trusting in God with our money. And I'm amazed at how many people don't want to talk about money and God. People will talk about anything. They'll talk with me about almost anything except their money. I'm not trying to get your money. I, I, I don't know a lot of churches that are trying to get your money. Now, I know that there are some charlatans out there that are trying to do that very thing. But money really does, in many ways, represent where our hearts are. And that's where our trust gets very real, very quick, and can be tangibly seen. God does call us to give to him before anything else. This, there is something about trusting in him with our money that tangibly shows what we believe. For those in the world, the idea of setting aside 10% of our money, which is our recommendation on where to start, and I, I've been a, a pastor at a church, we don't get legalistic about it, but we do recommend that people build up to that, that might seem crazy to you. I mean, we're great at giving giving away a few dollars here and there, but 10%, that seems nuts. But this is where this faith comes in and this trust is really seen. Because God wants us to trust in him in tangible ways and to increase our faith and show his presence in greater, greater ways in our lives. And I'm not talking always about what's extra, because some people might say, I don't have it, I don't have it, I don't have it. And you may well not. But I do know that Jesus commends a woman who puts in two mites that seems small to everybody else, but he tells everyone that this woman put everything in she had to live on. It's not about this, the, the extra. It's giving the essential. And I say this, and this is hard to do. I've been there wondering, is there enough money in the bank account to make it? Are we going to get through the month? How are we going to do this? How is God going to supply? And time and time again, I have seen God bless. And I want to let you know this, and I can say this from personal experience, you cannot outgive God. You can't outgive God. Giving simply displays another way we trust in our lives. Now let's get into verse 6. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. What does this mean? What does it mean to acknowledge him? I mean, the word literally means know and to announce, narrate. Now, I'm not talking about when guys get into American football end zone and then they point up to the heaven or take a knee. I mean, again, those are great things, but that's not what we're talking about by acknowledge. I mean, it, it really means to, to know and to announce, narrate in our lives that he is the one that's in charge. He is the one that is there. He is the one from whom we have life and sustenance and grace, and mercy. And when we're talking about all of our ways that we're to acknowledge him, the ways we read about means just life. In all our life, we are to know him, to live our lives by his word and what it says. And this is not just a Sunday morning thing. This means every part of our lives, at your workplaces, with your family, with your friends, and your entertainment, when you're surfing on your phone, when you're eating your dinner. And it's, and it's not sitting there in this legalistic fashion like a monk and you know, just muttering to yourself, oh, you know, like you've got this big halo on your head. No, that's not how Jesus was. He was laughing. He was being with people. Yes, I know before anyone writes 
writes in. There's no verse that has Jesus laughing, but he's interacting with his disciples and and they were living life together. And I'm sure there were laughs and there were inside jokes and and they were kind of kind of cracking on each other every once in a while and teasing each other and having fun. It wasn't always serious all the time. It was a men who were passionately following God with their entirety of their lives and their families and their careers and their monies and all of these different things. And oftentimes we put these biblical characters on such a stand that they are unknowable, unattainable, and that they are so inapproachable. But that wasn't Jesus. And that's why Jesus got knocked the way that he did, because he was hanging out with tax collectors, with sinners. He was engaging with people in the everyday ruts of life. And that's what God's called us to do. He's called us to be real people and allow God to permeate where we are. Now, I'm not saying that he he condones sinful things. No, the things that the Bible says that are wrong are wrong. But even then, he was there. He was loving. He was caring. He was patient. He was merciful. And we need to see that. And we need to continually seek him. We are to seek God's will for our lives. I mean, do you want to know what God's will is for your life? I know that you do. Many people say that they have searched for God and they have. They say, well, I've asked God or I've searched for God and he didn't show up. Well, there's two ways of searching. There's the search to adore and there's the search to avoid. Just like looking for a police officer. If I'm looking for a police officer, either I'm looking for a police officer to come and help me at that moment in time, and I'm so glad that they're there to help alleviate the situation, or I'm seeking to know where the police officer is so I can avoid them. And I think many people seek God to avoid, not adore. Which is it for you? To get away or to get to? There's a big difference between those two things. Both are seeking, but they have a vastly different end in mind. And I would recommend don't run from God's direction when it comes. Instead, seek it, embrace it, because God wants what's best for you. He does. He wants what is best for you. And I think the reason that many of us don't want God's direction is because we don't want to make the necessary changes that he wants to make in our lives. Now, I don't want to confuse us. You can't make all these changes then come to God. That's not what I'm talking about. Some people think that they need to be clean before they step in the shower. God says, no, just step into the spiritual shower. Okay, I'm going to get you clean, and then I'm going to make these changes in your life. And people think that hurts too much, and they can't live without their specific idol of their heart. Therefore, they don't come to God. And that is tragic to me, because that means people love their sin too much. And most of the world who may be in church but are not true believers are confused by God's direction. It doesn't make sense to them. They want to have their faith predictable, go through the motions, and then get on with their life, especially in the West. Not so much in other cultures because they know exactly the price that they pay for worshiping. They could lose their property. They could lose their station, their job. There are so many different things that they can lose. And it is a very difficult thing to process Many of us have no idea the price that people pay all over the world to follow Jesus Christ. And in the West, we in many ways have become so lazy and addicted to our creaturely comforts that we can't see the very presence of Christ. We wonder why we have no joy, why we can't feel or sense the presence of Christ. And oftentimes it's because we've wrapped ourselves in our creaturely comforts and we have failed to see the majestic nature of God and his desire for us 
to reach the world. And we're unwilling to risk those creaturely comforts to pay that price. While others are. Others are ready to go. They're ready to sacrifice everything and anything because they recognize what they have received is far beyond anything that this world has to offer. That's what I find so tragic here in the West. People want to check their boxes, go to church, stand, sing, listen to the message, become more moral, and then go without God being involved in every part of their lives. That is tragic to me. The fact is, as we can see from this passage, all our ways is referring to trusting in him with all of life. And I've heard some Christians say, well, when they do a business deal or they stab another person in the back, they say this, it's just business. No, in all of our ways, we're to acknowledge him. Even in our business practices, we don't take advantage of those who are hurting. We don't kick someone when they're down. We are not duplicitous in how we go about interacting with other people. In all of our ways, we acknowledge him not just on Sundays. It means in everything. It means in allowing God to define sin, telling us how to avoid temptation. It means in allowing him to dictate what is good, honorable, pure, and what should be pursued. It also means allowing him to dictate what is evil, unclean, shameful, and wicked, and what should be forsaken, not our culture. It means trusting in him for everything. It means giving him your singleness or your spouse. It means God directing your finances, relationships, education, career, or how you raise your children. It means allowing him to direct your work, how you treat others, how you forgive, how you admonish, how you love, how you greet, who you interact with, who you stand up for, how you go about justice. These are all things that God tells us about in his word on how we are to live. It means all of life. And when we seek God's will in all of this, we find this general promise in the next part of verse 6, and he will make straight your paths. Now, what does this mean? It means that when we trust in the Lord, stick with him, and he will then lead us. It's talking about him leading us. In, In Israel, this was a wonderful picture because the paths can be hilly and rocky. A straight path meant a level terrain. This doesn't mean that you will never have problems, but it means that he will be with you and give you direction. He will lead you to the people, places, and situations he thinks best. It carries the idea that he will help us by making our way easier. And not easier in the sense that we won't suffer, but easier in the sense that he will be with us as we go. It's as the 19th century Scottish missionary David Livingston once said, God, send me anywhere. Only go with me. Lay any burden on me. Only sustain me. And sever any tie in my heart, except the tie that binds my heart to yours. Allow God to lead. And that happens when we seek. Why would God want to give you any direction when you don't care about him or what he wants you to do? In verse 7, we come to the heart of the matter. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This is where we all live. I mean, the cross-section of life. We believe our way is right. Our politics are right. Our opinions are the right ones. Our understanding of God is the right way. We believe we are right when it comes to disagreeing with others. And we believe that we can know better than God. Or we believe that we can outsmart God. (laughs) Such talk is arrogant. 
And we have to steer clear of arrogance. We can think that our way is right and God's is wrong. And there are people that do that all the time. People that say yes with their their mouths, but then they go and they do something completely different. Tells me what it is you really believe. In fact, it reminds me of the words of Chief Justice John Roberts in his dissent on the gay marriage verdict in America. When noting that there is a definition of marriage that has transcended all of time and culture, and now we think we can change it, his words were, just who do we think we are? So true. And this is not just here. It's in everything. We can think that something is sin, and or we can sin and go on sinning, and God's not going to do anything about it. We think we can sin and sin, and there will not be any consequences. We think we can sleep with whoever we want, look at all kinds of porn, and that God is going to be okay with it. We think that we can redefine what is a man or a woman, or whether a baby is a baby or just a clump of cells. We think that we can have God's blessing without being obedient, and that's not true. In fact, we go so far as to think that God owes us for following him. Our arrogance truly knows no bounds. And you can apply this to so many other areas. A better path is the next part of that verse. For all of us, fear the Lord. For us to steer clear of arrogance requires us to fear God. The scripture says in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. If you want to know something, it begins by understanding that God is bigger than you. If you believe that you are the center of the universe, then you are already in trouble. Because you become the determiner of what is right and wrong. Without God, you become your own God. That's, <laughs> that's why the Bible calls atheists fools. As we read in Psalm 14:1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. They can't see the world around them. Every single part of it points to God. As we read in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what has been created instead of the Creator, who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they, wouldn't, so that they do what is not right. 
They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. That's what happens when you take God out of the equation. And that's where our world is. Some may not go so far as to deny God's existence, but they have to redefine him in order for him to be okay with the life that they want to live. Nope. That's leaning on our own understanding, and that is being wise in our own eyes. Instead, we need to look at the next part of verse 7. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. What does God want us to do? He wants us to fight sin, not stay in it, not promote it, but fight it, not tolerate it, not play with it, not celebrate it, not excuse it, not rationalize it, fight it. Every single one of us has to do this, and every single one of us knows our failures, but God still calls us to fight. Jesus said that sin was so serious that he said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29 through 30, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. He's using hyperbole. He's intentionally overstating it, saying, that's how serious you are to think about this. He's not asking you to literally cut off the parts of your body, but he's saying that you are to hate sin so bad that you need to get rid of it. Get away from it. Fight it with scripture. Fight temptation with accountability. Throw things away that lead you there. Leave places where you know sin may affect you. Drop the relationships with people who don't care about your holiness and only want you to sin. And people might respond, aren't we to reach such people? Yes, all people are to be reached. But if their life, their life leads you to sin, then you need to leave that relationship behind. As God said, bad company corrupts good morals in 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Fight it. How far are we willing to go to fight sin? Jesus was willing to go to the cross. That's his judgment upon it. How far are we willing to go? Notice what happens if we fight sin in our lives in verse 8. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. By turning from our sin, we experience spiritual, psychological, and physical healing. There is a restoration that takes place, and that means it's restored to a former state of well-being. By fearing God and turning from our sin, God will ensure our favor. He will provide healing. Uh, allow me to give you an example. If one looks at pornography... They, there are endogenous chemicals released in the brain, causing the viewer to be excited and causing all of the stress, pressures, anxieties, and pain to begin to fade away as the system is flooded. Dopamine is released to bring focused attention, causing the luster to neglect everything around him or her. Norepinephrine is then released, causing feelings of exhilaration and increased energy as the body is given a shot of natural adrenaline. 
The image is then stamped on the brain and hard to forget years later. Testosterone is then released, which in turn increases the desire for more porn. Oxytocin then is released, which acts as a natural tranquilizer. The individual then seeks an oxytocin rush to cope with the stress and pressure of life. Serotonin is released, which evokes a deep feeling of calmness. Individuals turn to pornography to self-medicate and escape the stress. But once everything finishes, the high quickly dissipates, leaving a feeling of despair and questions, what have I done? What was I thinking? Since that person, there is no person there to bond with, as it does in a husband and wife's intimate encounter, there is nothing but a shallow feeling that can only be entered into again with more and more material. It is no wonder that neuropsychologists refer to pornography as visual crack cocaine. There's actually a group on the internet called Fight the New Drug because they're recognizing that pornography is equivalent to heroin in many in many ways. It's so addictive. And here we see that God is telling us that if we fear him, fight sin, then he's going to grant us healing. Sometimes it is chemical, as it is here, but it's also spiritual. Sometimes it is physical, such as deliverance from another drug, such as alcohol, opioids, or crack. Sometimes this deliverance is instantaneous, and other times it is gradual overtime. But God will bring healing, and that healing will find itself in your relationships, marriages with our children, employers, employees, neighbors, our finances, and ourselves. Let's go to our last point in verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. I want to focus on the word honor for a moment. The Hebrew word kabed has at its root a word that means to be heavy. In our Western culture, we don't get it. But those from Asia and Africa, they understand this. It means to esteem a person as having value and declare him or her such to give them social weight or prominence. And in this verse, we see a movement from inner piety to an outward expression of worship. We are to present a tribute to him with our wealth. Let's put it this way. We are to show he's God with our money. We're to give God the proper respect with our money. We don't tip God. We need to show him the proper respect he's due. Now, how do we show that respect? It means using our wealth for righteous, just, and good things. But that begins with offering our first fruits, according to Deuteronomy 18, 1 through 5. Since we're not an agrarian society, allow me to explain. It involves giving the first of what we make, our best. It involves giving God our best. In the ancient world, it wasn't just the money, but the first fruits of their crops and livestock. That's not what we do today. We want to see what's left over and give that to God. My kids all go to school at different times, so, so to eat with each one is hard. I, I don't get a chance to eat with my oldest son, however. He eats his food but doesn't always finish it. Of course, the dog keeps sitting there waiting for us to be done, and he knows that if there's anything left over, he gets it. The dog loves it when I give him scraps. The problem is... That in this instance, we have the same letters, but we have it out of order. It's not D-O-G we give our scraps to, it's G-O-D. God doesn't get scraps. That's one of the problems we see in the Garden of Eden with Cain and Abel. We're told that Abel, or just outside of the Garden of Eden, excuse me, we're told that Abel gave out of his first fruits and Cain didn't. Let's look at Genesis 4, 2 through 5 for a moment. She also gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now, Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also presented an offering. 
some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious and he looked despondent. Why was God not looking in favor upon Cain's sacrifice or his offering? Uh, There are a few reasons why here, and one of them is simply because he didn't give his best. God doesn't want our leftovers. Both of them gave out of their professions. One was a shepherd and the other was a farmer. So they both bring from their worlds what they had to offer. But one was considered to be pleasing to God and the other one was not. This seems a little harsh to us because we think God got something after all, right? That should be enough. Wrong. And we really get a picture of this that's drawn out in Haggai chapter 1. And this takes place after the Israelites had returned to the land of Israel from after their exile in Babylon, and they were to rebuild the Jewish temple, but construction stalled. In Haggai chapter 1, verse 3 through 11, we read this. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, the Lord of armies says this. Think carefully about your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. The Lord of armies says this, Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down the lumber, and build the house, and I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. I have summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain, new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields, on man and animal, and on all that your hands produce." God withheld his blessing from the people because they failed to honor him properly. What then about us? If we honor him with our wealth, notice what happens. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. What does that mean? (laughs) He will make sure that we are blessed. That's what it's talking about. He will take care of our needs. We will have what we need. Wine was a symbol of blessing, of enjoying life. If you honor God with your wealth, then he will ensure that you are taken care of. He will provide your needs. All of this leads me to one conclusion. After going through all of this and how we how we are to honor or trust in the Lord, now we have to ask ourselves, we've learned all these different things, but are we ready to get into God's wheelbarrow? Do you believe that he can take care of you? Each of us needs to get into that wheelbarrow. And know this, it's going to be a little bit nerve-wracking. It's going to be a wild ride. The first way we get into the wheelbarrow is to believe in Jesus and what he did on the cross. And then, after we do that, we are to grow in our relationship with him by discovering who he is and what he has for us in his word. And then, once we learn it, we need to do it. And let's do it today, because he can carry us. 
And I want to finish off today because if this has helped you so that you can saturate your world, let us know. Hit that subscribe button, leave us a review, share this episode with other people, or go to our website, apolloswater.org, for our other resources. Go to our Facebook page or email me at travis at apolloswater.org if you have questions or comments on how we might better serve you to help you saturate your world with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. Little, little,